And woo, that's the power now. All right, fantastic. Romans chapter number 13. And if you'll join me, that would be great. Enjoyed Brother Tim's message last week. Appreciate him filling the pulpit and did a great job. And encourage you to pray for him and all of our college and careers. We'll head back the next couple of weeks to college. Hard to believe. Glad they're going in person and being able to go down there. So, or wherever they are going. So, pray for each one of them. And the Lord will watch over, protect them, but also grow them and uh, equip them to continue to serve. Romans chapter number 13. So we want to start out as we get into a new section now. That's enjoyable, always starting out a new part of a chapter. And we're going to pick up in verse number 8. If you need an outline, Brother Cliff's going to make his way down the middle aisle. If you weren't able to grab a prayer bulletin, he has some extras. We'd certainly love for you to follow along outline-wise. And uh, just gives us some clarity and direction. And you can know when I'm about to be finished. So you can breathe that sigh of relief, okay? As you can see when the outline coming to a close. All right, Romans chapter 13, look at verse number 8 with me, if you will. We'll read together. It says this, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not, or thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. Uh, and if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So you see a bookends idea here. But there is a switch, isn't there? In the subject at hand, if we were going to say, okay, Paul, you're talking about this subject. Now we see a switch in subject matter. In the previous verses, we've just finished up in his discussing the obedience of believers, the obedience of believers to government authority. And now it switches to our obligation to the those around us that we as believers have. And so these next few verses are going to deal with that. I like to sum it up this way. You see it on your outline, and uh, we'll turn this on. Hopefully it'll work. And uh, well, uh, notice what he does. The switch is what? Well, a focus, he moves from the law of the land to the law of our Lord. And we'll see that play out in these verses, that description. So Subject matter, uh, in other words, where he gives our attention, he draws our attention to is this. And in doing so, uh, Paul invokes probably the most basic principle of the Christian life. We talked about it on Sunday as we dealt with the family attitude and spirit, the environment, is the most basic principle of Christianity is love one another. And uh, if we are to be known to others by our love one for another, if, if God comes back and says these two commandments rest all the law and the prophets, it's obvious that one of the basic principles is love one another. And we see that, and that's certainly what Paul is playing upon. In fact, Christ taught about it much, and he even called it, you remember, the new commandment. Turn with me to John chapter 13. We're going to look at several passages this evening. John chapter 13, look with me at verse 34, if you will. John chapter 13, verse number 34. In Christ's words, he's saying this, a great statement he makes. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. Now he gives some description or characterization. As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. And so I want to kind of focus in on the first part. He says this, a new commandment I give unto you. Now that's, that's interesting because we see the whole scriptures as a whole kind of flowing. And what does he mean, a new commandment? And I, I think it really ought to demand our ponderance and our consideration this evening. What, what makes it so unique? Why did Christ put it that way? 
A new commandment I give unto you. Why, why, what makes it unique, what he says here, different than anything else we read, specifically in the Old Testament? Why, why is there such a difference that he's making a new commandment give I unto you? Uh, certainly it has to do with the qualification to love others as he has loved us, no doubt. But as we consider it, I want to, to turn to another passage, Leviticus chapter 19. Turn to Levit- Leviticus chapter 19 with me. I told you we'll be turning, and here we are, Leviticus chapter 19. Look at verse number 18, if you will, with me. Leviticus chapter 19, we'll look at verse number 18. So we're going to build a foundation heading into these verses of what is Paul saying and upon what foundation and basis is he saying what he is saying okay Leviticus chapter 19 look at verse number 18 with me if you will Leviticus 19 18 thou shalt not avenge and this is part of the Mosaic law given to the Jews thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself I am the Lord now great statement because what do we find aha there's some consistency throughout scripture if Christ himself you ought to says you ought to love others love your neighbor and we see that throughout the New Testament we see a consistency now throughout the entire Bible which is a great thing it's not exclusive to the New Testament And I'm grateful for that because this is the complete canon of Scripture. We see things consistently presented throughout scriptures. In some areas, they're emphasized more. In others, you have to see them within the teaching. But it's there. And I'm grateful that the scriptures, all of it are profitable. Uh, profitable for those things that Paul lists later on. And so let me just encourage you. Uh, there's something for us to consider tonight. These aren't exclusive. This love one another, this, this statement that Paul gives us that Christ says is a new commandment, it's not exclusive to the New Testament, but we can readily admit that the emphasis and elaboration on what it means and what this love looks like is greater in the New Testament. In the New Testament, there are at least 15 instances where we read the three words together, love one another, or variations of it. Now, if you want to expand it and throw in some other uh, fragments or statements or phraseology of it, you'd find it more. But at least 15 times, love one another is found in the New Testament. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? You remember how many books are in the Bible? How many books are in the New Testament? How many books are in the Old Testament? Okay, good, good, you got it, all right, good, that's a check, that was just a, you know, good job, just checking your memory, okay, so we've got 27 books over here, right, got 39 over here, we got 66 all together, and in that, you have 27 books where you find love one another, and if you hold up your Bible, boy, that New Testament is smaller in thickness if we could describe it as such, and yet in that is an overwhelming presentation of love one another. Interestingly, too, in the Old Testament, I don't find that statement anywhere. Now, it may be found in a different way of phrasing it, but the reality is you don't read anywhere in the Old Testament, love one another. Now, understand what I just alluded to. It does not mean that it is not there. We've just read Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as thyself. And he gives, even in that, a couple things. Don't avenge yourselves. Don't hold a grudge. Those are practicalities or uh, applications of what love is, loving your neighbors thyself. So you say, Pastor Henry, what's the point in this? Well, the fact is this. Though there are other expressions of that truth and teaching, we can deduce that the emphasis of the Old Testament is our relationship with God, seeing God for who he is, fearing God, and yes, loving him, all in light of holiness and the law, and that you and I, as mankind, we fall uh, inescapably short of the glory of God. 
In fact, as we even see and read that in Leviticus 19, the fact is, man, you and I, those Jews could not live up to that, to love their neighbor as themselves. That, to them, man, must have seemed greatly impossible. So we then come to the New Testament, we see this abundance. Now, what's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Well, notice in your outline, here's a great transition that we see. There's a movement, a transition from the dispensation of law to the dispensation of grace, okay? We would hold to dispensationalism and different dispensations where God worked in a different economy with people. And we'll get into that, I hope, and plan to preach a message sometime soon explaining dispensationalism. So, uh, you know what that means, but there is a movement from the dispensation of law to the dispensation of grace. As Christ died on the cross, the dispensation of law came to an end, the dispensation of grace uh, came on. And so the glasses through which we see these commands, these imperatives uh, that are given to us now change. We could describe it this way. Uh, now they are expressed in light of the manifold abundant grace of God that has provided salvation. And that's the key. You see it on your next, uh, the next blank. Love is now presented through the employment of what? Grace. We have fully come to understand at least as much as humanly possible to understand what grace is. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, for by Grace are ye saved through faith. So with Christ coming, his, his advent of coming to earth and then living a perfect life, going to the cross of Calvary and dying on the cross for your sins and for mine, now we can look at that and say, wow, that's grace. That you and I gain heaven, we lose hell, that's grace. And so we have an understanding of what grace is, and now as our understanding is enlarged and empowered and broadened, we might say, and add to that, we now have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, Jesus Christ working in us and through us, that good knowledge. Boy, you know what happens in the New Testament? I love how I might describe it. All these great acts presented to us. We have the New Testament exploding with the applications and description of love in action. So we're looking at the Old Testament. Love thy neighbor as itself. She's like, man, I, we fear God and we love God. But man, this is hard. How am I supposed to treat my neighbor as myself? And then we get to the New Testament. And it's not only repeated, but this aspect of loving one another. And then it explodes with all these applications. You may have caught on Sunday morning as we talked about uh, the, the family and fellowship. Man, we listed a ton of do this to one another, forbear one another, and so forth, so forth, so forth. Now that is possible because you and I are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We can be yielded to the Holy Spirit constantly, consistently. And now we know what grace is. As God has demonstrated love and grace to me, now I have the ability, I have the power. Through Christ, I can do all things. I can now in turn show grace and love in an agape way, in a gracious way. That's literally what Paul is hitting on, what the New Testament is presenting for you and I. It's a new commandment. You say, why did Christ say it's a new commandment? Well, simply because now we are operating within the dispensation of grace. And now you and I can employ amazing love to both God and our fellow man. See, grace also helps you and I to understand fully who God is. And as our knowledge of God grows, guess what also should grow? Our love for God. 
And as grace and my understanding and knowledge of grace imparted to me and given to me by my God and my Lord Jesus Christ, as that is imparted to me and my understanding of that, boy, in turn, I should be able to show you more and more grace exponentially because my understanding has been certainly enlightened. I now have seen grace in action. What's amazing, remember, see the rest of verse 8, and we'll certainly get into it in verse 9, and then even in verse 10. What does it allude to? This fulfills the law. (laughs) The entire, wow, now that's loving under grace now fulfills everything the Old Testament law could have asked from us. Okay, let me put it into context that maybe my my juvenile mind can understand might help some of us. How many of you ever remember playing Pac-Man? Centipede, anything like that, Galaga, okay? There was an old game, it was called Hunt the Wumpus, Commodore 64, anybody? Okay, anyway, that was a long time ago, okay? So these games, what do we know about? Well, now today, good news for you and I, they're called nostalgic, okay? They're called old school. They're called, well, Batman, you know, your kids go, is that all it does? (laughs) Yes, and it's fun. (laughs) You know, they don't quite get that. Why is it called nostalgic? Why is it called old school? It's one-dimensional. It's, it's in their minds, boring. Um, it's very basic. The pixelation is terrible. <laughs> That's the graphics. It's just terrible. Okay? I mean, as you look at it, it's just basic. But you know what? It's still a video game. It's a video game. You want to play a video game? Here's Pac-Man. I can offer you that. That's still a game. Now we look at today's games, and goodness, we've gone to 360-degree platforms, we've, we've gone uh, virtual environments and games, multidimensional, no doubt, we even have the degree of virtual reality where the game looks just like life. That's a little scary, isn't it? Those are video games, right? The reality is this, is Pac-Man a video game? Yes. Are these far-fletched and amazing games and how they're designed today, video games? Yes. But boy, if you compare the two, our, our kids are like, that's not a video game. May I just tell you that kind of pictures, and in a not in, probably inadequate way, the love as people understood in the Old Testament of how I'm supposed to have for one another, now we get to the New Testament. My friend, can, can I tell you, we've seen love in action. And now I look at the cross like, wow, that's what love looks like. See, you and I, we can go from Pac-Man to this, <laughs> but you try to get somebody who's grown up on this to go back to Pac-Man, that may not work. <laughs> Why? Because, man, they've been enlightened. They've been brought in their understanding of the concept. For you and I as Christians, man, praise God, you and I have come to understand what grace is. Now you and I are called to employ that very same grace in our lives as we look at other people. Oh, is it difficult? Yes. Does it necessitate an agape love, a Christ-like character? Certainly. Yet grace has improved our ability and, and our understanding of how to truly love both God and our fellow man. Uh, the imperative, the instruction is still present. And I think this is key. You say, well, Pastor Henry, you're saying it's different. No, it's really not different. It's just that we understand it greater. We have a greater concept of it because of what Christ gave to us. Here's a great example. The lawyer came to Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ said, okay, what does the law say? What, what is it that the law, if you could sum up the law, friend, what is it that it says? And that lawyer said to Christ, you remember? Love God, love thy neighbor. Now, here's a guy that got grown up in the Mosaic Law, and in his great, great studying of it, he came to a conclusion, oh, it's teaching me to love God, it's teaching me to love my neighbor. So it was there, it's just now, my friend, by grace, we can fully understand what it looks like, and we can employ it, because the grace that's been afforded to me, I now, in turn, can afford it to others, because now I have a concept of what grace looks like. That grace that's brought salvation, that grace I get every day from our God in heaven. 
And the fact is this, as we grow in that understanding, our gracious love for both God and mankind, only when we get our love for God right can we get our love for our fellow man right. That's why the Old Testament was so important in helping us to see, boy, I fall short of that. I need somebody to come along and help me be reconciled to God. Jesus Christ came and did that. Now, a new creature in Christ, I can do things I never could do before by the grace of God. And now I can love my fellow man because I am right with God and I've grown in my love for God. So crucial, such a great teaching about the truth of this, and it's just the introduction. So I'm excited, okay? It's a good part. I hope you'll wrap your mind around as we look ahead there here. Okay, so let's look at the next installment, verse number 8 specifically, back here in Romans chapter 13. As we understand the, uh, the growth or, or maybe the progress of this uh, instruction or whatever you want to call it in that sense. Verse 13, look at verse 8 again. Oh, no man in anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. All right, let's add our first installment. Number one, uh, of the latest of Paul's installments of this description of gracious love is this. Number one, love like you owe it. <laughs> love like you owe it. Love like you owe it. Now, in Paul's masterful ability, you see what he did there in verse number eight? He, he has instructed us both with financial advice and also instruction on how to graciously love others. So there's a financial principle, and there is also a moral principle presented in this passage. The first part of the verse is interesting, is it? Oh, no man anything. Now, some have taken that. In fact, some people that you would know have taken that and used it as the base for their personal conviction that I will have no debt. I am going to avoid all loans of any sort or any description. Spurgeon believed that. Hudson Taylor, missionary to China, he held to that conviction. They took that statement of saying that. Now, I, I don't necessarily agree. I would lean more with some other theologians who look at that, and if we could describe it, here's what I believe it's really telling us. Notice the, stem, uh, the statement here. Never borrow what you can't pay. Never borrow what you can't pay. So Pastor Henry, where do you base that on and, and that where would you say I, I wouldn't hold to the conviction that those men would? Well, there are several illustrations in the Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, that present banking, lending, borrowing in a positive light or at the very least in a neutral light. Uh, going all the way back to the Old Testament, may, several different passages, we see it uh, provided to us in, in, uh, in the Mosaic Law. It's there. God even, he gives guidance for how you are to lend money to the fellow uh, patriots of the Israeli nation. He says, okay, don't do this. In fact, he talks, talks about don't do usury, uh, don't do interest, charge uh, uh, crazy amounts. If you look at Nehemiah chapter 5, if you look in Deuteronomy chapter 15, Proverbs chapter 19 alludes to lending. So I believe in scriptures there's a good foundation not to interpret this as him saying never take out a loan, never do that, and so forth, okay? So I think we can say that from scriptures, but obviously there's wisdom here that says never borrow if you cannot pay it never borrow what you cannot pay so how do we apply that to our lives because the scriptures are clear if they then do in turn as i believe permit lending and borrowing and banking if the scriptures do that here's the key whatever scriptures say is okay or allows you ought to still do it according to the principles found within scripture 
Throughout the scriptures, it, it talks about principles that apply to lending and apply to banking and apply to borrowing. So you say, Pastor Henry, how do we apply this truth to our lives right now? May I just give you a couple statements, a couple applications that I believe are, are, are consistent with the teaching of God's Word. You see, you ought to never apply for or take out a loan that you know you will never be able to follow through on the payments with. You ought never to borrow something, you know, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to pay this. I, I, I don't have a clue how I'm going to do this, and, but you know what? I really want the car. I really want that house. I, I really want my kid to go to Harvard. <laughs> okay. I, but you take out all this loan, and you say, I, I, I can't afford this. Well, my friend, if you can't afford it, you ought not to borrow to pay for it. It's a biblical principle. It's being a wise steward. We could, we could apply many different applications here, but I, I believe that this is certainly alluding to it in teaching us of this truth. You ought not to live by loans and credit as much of America does today. You ought not to live just by loans and by credit. Well, I don't have money. I just got to keep buying on credit. Don't do that because you know what we found out even this year? One bad crisis is all it takes to mess up your life. See, if you live by loans and credit and everything else, if you're, if, you're not, if you're borrowing more that you can eventually pay or pay in time, my friend, you are setting yourself up for the next bad crisis to ruin you and wreck you. So it's a principle to live by and apply that is found throughout Scripture. Um, may I just put it succinctly in this sense, you see it on your outline there, we must, uh, we must take the incurring of debt seriously. If you can't afford it, you shouldn't take out a loan for it. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, it means that if your likely income will not permit you and allow you to pay back the lender, then don't do it. Others, and even myself in marriage counseling, I, I, I highly recommend that when taking out debt, you ought not to exceed 20 to 25% of your take-home pay. You ought to keep it proportional so that you know, hey, if something goes wrong, my income decreases, then I can afford this on top of taking care of day-to-day basic necessities. So I think that's a great place to start, 20-25% of your take-home pay. It's good advice. Um, you think of it, and, and when I say 20-25% of your debt, that's all debt, your car, your house, throw it all in together. Make sure it doesn't exceed 20-25%. You make 48000 a year, don't let your debt get more than $12,000. So just keep it as a guideline and instructions so we don't own. You say, well, why is that so important? Because you know what happens? We get into debt and it adds strain to life. It adds pressure. And then if you're married, boy, does it add more pressure and stress to your marriage. Fighting over money. Well, we don't have money to do that. We can't afford that. Well, you spent that and you bought that and oh, man, all of a sudden then we're all going into debt to keep everybody happy. And you know what? Last time I checked, the number one cause of divorce Stress over finances. Isn't that crazy? And I'll tell you, in America, and I am afraid probably other places of the world, reality is that debt is a contributor to financial issues. So be careful. That's why it's so crucial for us to make sure. Uh, let me, if this hasn't stepped on toes, let me add a little bit more. You use credit cards like any other tool. If you can't control it and use it wisely, then don't do it. Cut them up. Don't use them. If you can, fantastic. Go for it. It's, it's a great tool. But if you can't, don't even pick it up. 
There was one occasion I remember in my house, and I was doing projects around the house, and I, I left a, a circular saw, one of the old plug-ins, not battery-operated, and I left a circular saw plugged in, and one of my little boys at the time, he had been watching me, and, and I went to go work on something else, and I remember him reaching down and grabbing, and he had seen where Daddy had pushed, and I heard, mm. <laughs> I turned around like that, and what did I say? Okay, son, cut that two-by-four. No, not at all. He was like two, four, three, whatever the case. No, no, no. Don't touch that. Put that down. Don't pick that up. Don't, don't, don't move. Don't squeeze that. I mean, boy, just you know, freaking out as you can imagine. Don't do Don't grab that and so forth. You say, well, why in, the, why in the world did you react so, so? Well, because if it was used correctly, that's one thing. But used incorrectly, it's a dangerous thing. May I just tell you, here's the reality. Credit cards can be a dangerous thing. Put it this way, here's the principle we can derive from it. An improperly used tool becomes a tool for harm and hurt. So uh, this idea, wow, it's fantastic. Can I tell you, I am grateful for down through the ages, the years that I've had a, been able to take out a loan or a mortgage to buy a house. It is a great privilege, a blessing to be able to buy a house. But I'll tell you, my friend, you can abuse that. Back before 2008 or whatever the case may be, we found a lot of people abusing mortgages. Lenders abusing, giving anybody that. And in our area in Virginia, I remember that. Boy, they were throwing out mortgages left and right. People couldn't afford them. They weren't having to put down hardly 2% down. And what happens? Well, the crash comes and people lose their homes. Their lives are devastated. Things go awry. And I just tell you, the fact is this. Those things are good tools, a loan, whatever the case may be. A credit card is a great tool, but you use it inappropriately. Man, it could cause harm and hurt. I have heard of marriages being ruined by credit card debt and, and so forth. Just be careful. Guard against that. As we've said here, um, if you can't pay off your credit cards every month uh, and on time, then you shouldn't have them. Do you hear that? If you can't pay off your credit cards every month and on time, then you probably shouldn't have them. Because if we're applying the principle of I can pay, I only borrow what I pay, credit card is nothing more than a short-term loan. One of the principles that we work by in our house, and certainly even here at the church, we have to make sure that we have money in the bank account before we use a credit card. Because we know we have to pay it. End of the month, it's got to be taken care of. We've got to reconcile the books, and it ought to be that way. And if you can't do that, and, and I get it, some are better with money and some aren't. I mean, if you're one of those that aren't, go to cash. Keep a wad of it. Just don't tell neighbors, okay? Just don't tell other people. Keep a wad of cash in there. Listen, we've got to operate in such a way that is in keeping with God's Word. Can I just encourage you, parents? We need to teach our children these principles. Because you know what happens. You turn 18, 21, all of a sudden the, the, the mailbox, now it's email mailbox, fills up with offers. You qualify for this credit card. You qualify for this credit card. You qualify for this loan and so forth and so on. And uh, we need to warn them and encourage them. Uh, the fact is this, when it comes to any kind of loan, the bottom line, you see it here, if you cannot pay it on time and in full, don't borrow. Because Why? Bible says, oh, no man, anything. See, I may have a mortgage, but I, I can cover that mortgage. I can take care of it. I can pay for it. And, and those loans or debt, whatever, we've got to be able to uh, pay what we borrow. Now, let me also mention one thing here that I, I don't think I've heard preached much before. 
I would encourage if you are as a Christian ever come to the threshold having to consider bankruptcy, you ought to consider it very carefully. Because a Christian ought to pay for your debts. You ought to take, take full responsibility. I need to do this. If you've gone through bankruptcy, I'm not beating you over the head. I'm just instructing anyone who may have to come to that point or maybe down the road. Bankruptcy ought to be a very, 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 very last resort for a Christian. And I trust and I believe that God can direct and guide anyone uh, to recover in such a way. Because you know what? Your testimony would shine if you had to, were on the threshold of bankruptcy and God provided and worked. And boy, you paid off all those debtors and you paid off all those lenders and so forth. My, how God could get the glory from even that. Uh, so be careful. Be wise in how we handle our money. You say, why is it so important? Well, because borrowing is serious business. Boy, if you borrow, man, any of us that has a mortgage, you, you know how it feels. It's like a chain around your, your ankle, at least a string attached in one way or the other. I, I like how one well-known financial guru, he likes to say that the borrower is slave to the lender. And that's, that's true. I like how the Bible puts it even better, obviously. And they both speak to control and influence that the lender has over the borrower. The, the, the Bible just simply puts it this way. The borrower is indebted uh, to the lender. So there's a relationship now established here that I'm dependent on. And literally, here's the point. I think this is so crucial, what he is alluding to here. Uh, boy, you have a debt. What happens to that debt? And this is why he says financially, be careful what kind of debt you have. Morally, you have a debt. We'll get to that in a moment. But financially, be careful because you know what happens? That takes your attention and your focus as it should because I want to make sure that I, I pay, all, pay it off. I, I take care of it. I don't let it oh, go into debt collection or whatever the case may be there. There's a connection and obligation that needs to be taken seriously until all is repay, repaid. Uh, many of you, like, like I, have a mortgage company. Uh, for us, it's our only debt right now. But that mortgage, that mortgage hangs on to you. It's kind of a burden hanging over you. It's always something that you are aware that you owe. You, you don't want to miss a payment. You, you don't want to pay a late fee. You, you don't want to skip a payment. You, uh, you want to stay on top of it. But yet when you make a payment on that loan, as many of you have, a, maybe a 15-year mortgage, 30-year mortgage, whatever the case may be, as you make a payment on that loan, the fact is this, it doesn't release you from the indebtedness. In other words, as you pay one payment on it, it doesn't mean that, okay, I'll, I'm all of a sudden free now. No, if I have a 15-year mortgage, I'm continuing to pay on that. 30-year mortgage, I'm continuing to pay until the loan or the debt is discharged. Now listen, here's the point. Here's Paul's point of transition. He's challenging you and I about this debt and the reality of it. Boy, you don't owe no man anything. Why? Because boy, you're always going to be indebted in that sense. It's always going to take your attention and your focus. It's a serious matter to be in debt. So you ought to take care of it. He says that now ought to be applied morally. He makes a transition from those concepts and precepts in Scripture about how we handle money. He says, okay, now let's take that to the Christian realm of graciously loving one another. In your outline, we've called this the moral principle that Paul uh, provides for us. You see, uh, there is a debt that I owe each person, and Paul says that is to what? To love them. Verse number 8 makes it clear, but to love one another. He repeats it, he that loveth another. Later on, love thy neighbor. It's a recurring theme. It's a recurring teaching. He goes, okay, you and I have a debt. And he's pointing to this. Notice what he says. It's a perpetual, a perpetual indebtedness. It's a continual obligation. The idea is that this is a debt that we are paying against 
frequently, often, but we never get to pay it off. Now, how about you? That does not make me happy when it comes to a mortgage. Okay, if I was playing, just paying and paying, but yet I could never pay it off, that's not a good mortgage. If you have a financial advisor that tells you it is, you need to run quickly away. Okay? For, for a financial, physical, that's not a good idea. And yet Paul's saying here, wait a minute, morally, spiritually, we have a debt that we owe each person. And you, you pay against it every day, yet you pay it off. It's a debt we permanently owe, which never leaves us. We pay it every day. We owe it for the rest of our lives. That's what Paul is stipulating right here, right now, in this passage, in this verse. Number one, love like you owe it, because you do. Essentially what God is saying. Love like you owe it. It is a perpetual indebtedness. You might say, Pastor Henry, I, we might argue, I, God, I just don't have the resources to love others for the rest of my life. I can't love that person that way. And you, you would be right if you and I were not redeemed children of God. You would be right if, if you were still not saved and you were operating in the old flesh and, and you had nothing within you to help. The fact is, you're probably right. You probably couldn't do that. But now, what do we have? The grace of God. You and I are children of the King. We have all His gracious provisions for us, and one of the utmost of that is grace, a grace that empowers our loving, extending to us the resources we need every day to show the love that we've been called to love. We reminded ourselves on Sunday about one aspect of prayer, didn't we? Ye have not because ye ask not. You say, Pastor Henry, it's just I, I could never love that person. Well, in all seriousness, let me ask you this. And maybe a neighbor, or maybe a coworker, or maybe a family member. Say, Pastor Henry, I just could never love that person. Let me ask you, have you really, honestly, sincerely asked God to fill your heart with love for that person? Have you made it a matter of prayer consistently? You have not because you ask not. Have you asked God and the Holy Spirit and have you willingly yielded to the Holy Spirit and his endeavors to plant and water and nourish and grow love for that person? Have you done that? Have you really stepped back and said, okay, God, if, you, if you've called me to love everybody, love one another, and boy, there's just, just, just this one person here, and Father, I don't think I, okay, God, you need to put love within my heart. You need to grow it, nourish it, water it in my heart. Still, our flesh likes to argue, though, doesn't it? You don't know what they said to me. You don't know what they did to me. You, you don't know how they treated me. And it hasn't just been once and it's, or twice or three times or four times. It's been my whole life. Well, I'll just be honest with you. I am sorry for you, but I'm also glad for you. I say, oh, Pastor Henry, that sounds like a schizophrenic. Someone who's just kind of a divided man, unstable. No, I am sorry for you. Because of obvious the negative impact it's had on your life. If that's how you feel, and boy, it's affected you. I'm sorry for that. But I am glad for you, as we see on our outline, the simple statement, that every difficulty, every opposition, every uncomfortable event, every instance of hurt, every occasion of offense is a moment in which the floodgates of God's grace are hanging over you. They are ready to be poured out upon you and poured out within your heart. This is living in light of grace. This is you and I saying, okay, 
I'm supposed to love one another. I'm supposed to love my neighbor. I'm supposed to express in this way. The only way I'm going to do that is through the grace of God given unto me and working in me. And Paul calls us to them. And Paul says, listen, oh, no man, anything. But you have a debt to love everybody. You have a debt. You know what God does when you and I graciously love someone and maybe they're not deserving of it. Maybe they have not reciprocated that love. Maybe they haven't shown us kindness. But when you and I uh, do so and we come back and, and you know what God tells you and I each time? I can just envision what he says. Hey, good job today. Well done in showing grace to so-and-so. Now remember, tomorrow is a new day. And each person you come across and each person you interact with you owe them love. Man, what a great thought. Because that's really what God's saying to you and I. Uh, hey, owe no man anything but to love one another. And every day I'll give you the grace that you need to love every person in your life the way they need to be loved. The way you ought to love them. A gracious love. Certainly needing the power of God and the strength of God at work in our lives. Your flesh may still be arguing maybe you're saying in your mind and heart, well, I, I just don't see how that can be. I don't see it that way. Well, if that's your response, I'll tell you, your response is in good company. You're in the company of Peter. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. I, uh, you love Peter. Peter gives us so many good illustrations and examples of things. And in Matthew chapter 18, you know what we see? We see Peter saying, okay, my debt is paid. Matthew chapter 18, he's saying to Christ, he's saying, my, my debt has been paid. Look at verse 21 with me, if you will. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then came Peter to him, that's Jesus Christ, and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? Now, Peter makes a great statement. Yeah, my debt's paid. That's literally his name. I mean, if I, does that cover my debt seven times? Christ goes on, Jesus saith unto him, I say unto thee, until seven times, or not unto thee, excuse me, until seven times, but until seventy times seventy. Ha! Or seventy times seven, excuse me. Catch what he's teaching him. And Peter's coming along, he's saying, wow, my debt's paid. Seven times, and I'll tell you, seven times forgiven someone, that's a lot. Humanly speaking, you know, someone does the same thing or different things. And like, when are they going to learn? Why have they learned? Man, I just, this is, forgive them 70 times 7. Now listen, Christ is saying what? You basically just got started. 7 out of 490. You just got started, man. You haven't even reached the first marker. You need to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. I thought about doing it 490 times, but I won't. That's what he says. You need to do that. That is your responsibility. I, a part of your love for one. Forgive them. He's looking at Peter. Peter's like, you're kidding. What? Yeah, Peter, love one another. There's no way. I, I could just imagine if what's not recorded here, and I like to use an imagination sometimes. What if Christ said, you know, Peter, when you were five years old, you stole some cookies out of that. And when you were seven, you hit your brother. And he starts going down all line. Peter, do you know how many of those sins were forgiven? What if I just forgive seven of your sins? Hmm. Well, that hits home, doesn't it? And what are you and I called to do? We're supposed to, as Jesus Christ talks about the new commandment, <laughs> we're supposed to love even as God has loved us. We're supposed to forgive even as God, for Christ's sake, hath what? Forgiven you. 
Now that puts it in a whole different ballgame yesterday. There is no way that Stephen Henry is humanly capable of that. It's exactly right. But through the grace of God, I can. I can afford grace in such a way. What was Peter realizing? I love this. Christ, man, he, he, puts it, he puts it to him. He comes down to verse 35. He talks, he gives this illustration, this parable about the guy who he owed his, his king, his Lord, and he was forgiven his debt. And yet there's a guy who him very, owed him very little, and he threw him in prison to pay for it. And boy, they, they threw him, took him back, threw him to the tormentors. And then verse number 35, Christ says, So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespass. Passes. It was a whole different level. And I tell you what, Peter realized two things, and we're done. You see it on the outline there. Peter, number one, he realized how great the love of God is to each one of us. See, the great point of the Old Testament is look, you and I fall short. We've seen that in Romans. And yet, Jesus Christ came along, He died on the cross for you and I, and we have received grace. Grace. And boy, Peter's thing here, okay, God, you got a point. <laughs> I, I, I want you to forgive much more than 490 of my sins. I, I want you to love to forgive those and look past those, God. And I want you to forgive me of those as, uh, for Christ's sake. And uh, he gets it. He understands it. Then secondly, obviously, he came face to face with the reality of how great our debt of love is for those around us. Well, Paul speaks of later, and he says, Oh, no man, anything but to love one another. Here's your debt. A daily debt of loving one another. Through forbearance, through forgiveness, through kindness, through you name it, all the things that are described in the one another's of the New Testament, that's the imperative. You know, if we embrace this imperative this evening that we should love like we owe it, because God says we do, my, what a change it could have in our interactions this week. At work and at home and every place we go, it could affect so many things. May you and I employ by grace this love to everyone with whom we have contact this week. And may we do it not in our own power, but by the grace of God. I'm thankful for this passage. We'll get into the next two next week as we add, uh, Paul adds a couple more mandates, instructions for us. Brother Cliff, if you'll bring those prayer requests, let me.